In March of 1969, just three short months after Apollo 8's history-making trip around the moon, Apollo 9 lifted off from the coast of Florida for an entirely different type of mission. Apollo 9's task was to test the lunar module in low Earth orbit, flying this strange new spacecraft that would be tasked with getting astronauts safely to and from the surface of the moon for the very first time. Apollo 9 also included America's first two-man spacewalk, opening the hatches of the command service module and the lunar module, testing both the hatches and NASA's latest spacesuit, including the backpack that would be used on the lunar surface. Guidance released 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9. We have ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engines running. Commit. Liftoff. We have liftoff at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're marking the 50th anniversary of each crewed Apollo flight starting today with Apollo 9. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN and Squarespace. My name is Jason Snell, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hey, Jason. How are you? Very good. Good to be back in uh, an Apollo capsule again. Yes. Wait, who's the third? You have someone silent on your end of the call? Um, Mike Hurley is our (laughs) silent command module pilot can trust that guy now <laughs> let's dive in yeah let's do it apollo 9 launched on march 3rd 1969 it was the second crewed flight to use the full stack saturn 5 the big 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 rocket on board were two spacecraft the command module named gumdrop and the lunar module named spider the names came actually from how these two spacecraft look uh, gumdrop when it was shipped to the cape was in bright, colorful plastic, and they called it Gumdrop. <laughs> and uh, as for Spider, have you have you seen the lunar module? <laughs> it's that a great is, name. It's good. <laughs> it is. It is this weird, spindly thing. Uh, we're going to talk a lot more about the the Lem later on. It is one of the signature aspects of the entire Apollo program. Um, Apollo Nine, by the way, the first crew since Gemini Three who were actually allowed to name their spaceships, and you got Gumdrop and Spider out of it. Yeah, well, I remember Gus Grissom ruined the party when he named his uh, capsule Molly Brown uh, after sinking the Liberty Bell 7 capsule. NASA didn't find that funny, so they they uh, took it away. But now here on Apollo 9, the astronauts, I guess, have, have done their time in naming detention, and they can name their craft again. All right, gumdrop. Good old gumdrop. Here's the crew, speaking of which, who got to name these spacecraft. On Apollo 9, there were two veterans— and one rookie. So the commander of Apollo 9 was Jim McDivitt, who was an Air Force pilot. He served in Korea. He was both a fighter pilot and later a test pilot. He joined NASA in 1962 in, I believe, the second round of new astronauts uh, and was the command pilot of Gemini 4 and, a uh, little trivia, first Catholic in space. That's one Jim McDivitt wins. Um, the command module pilot was Dave Scott, who is also an Air Force pilot and a uh, test pilot in his background. He joined NASA in the next class, 1963 class of astronauts, and flew on Gemini 8 with Neil Armstrong. And the uh, lunar module pilot was Rusty Schweikert, who was an Air Force pilot as well. Three Air Force gentlemen in this mission. And Rusty Schweikert was also, for a while, a research scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. That is pretty cool. So definitely 
solid scientific background there. And like Scott, joined NASA in 1963, but had not flown on one of the Gemini missions before. While liftoff went smoothly, venting from the S-4B's propellant takes changed the orbit of the spacecraft. After the command service module swung around to dock with the lunar modules, remember, they when they launched them, they're sort of out of order, and they got to swing around to pick it up. Um, the lunar module at this point is still attached to the top of the rocket's upper stage, so they did a burn to correct the orbit. Yeah, it's tricky. Tricky when you got two spacecraft and you actually have to join them together when you're in space. Now, this didn't actually affect Apollo 9, but if it, if the orbit had been wrong, it could have gotten them uh, in if they were going to the moon out of alignment for that TLI translunar injection burn and you know they're watching all of this is a dress rehearsal for going to the moon so it's all um, stuff that they want to watch and test mm-hmm. we spoke about this last time but there have been delays with the lunar module so NASA had to kind of rearrange several of these Apollo missions and once it was decided that Apollo 8 would take the command service module around the moon Deke Slayton asked both McDivitt and Frank Borman of Apollo 8 which mission they preferred. Borman preferred the moon, and McDivitt preferred flying the lunar module. Yeah, this is good uh, management technique on the part of Deke Slayton, who, you know, I try to think about being a manager of all of these hard-charging astronaut types and ultimately being the person who decides who the first person to land on the moon is. And that's a tough job. And I think the way Slayton played it was a combination of showing respect for his his pilots and also sort of letting the machine do the work. Like he tried to build the machine of how the backup crews and the, and the primary crews worked so that in the end it would kind of be the result of that system that ended up popping out who would be the first person to set foot on the moon and rather than it be um, just kind of purely a favoritism or political decision of like sure. we're, we're going to pick the guy um and we'll see how that this this mission following on from apollo 8 um actually led to that point so um you might say to yourself well if i'm going to choose between apollo 8 and apollo 9 whether i get to be the first people to go around the moon or i just kind of hang around in earth orbit and fly around with the lunar module why would you not choose Apollo 8? Apollo 9 sounds totally anticlimactic. There were ticker tape parades for Apollo 8. You probably could have guessed that there would have been. Sure. But from the perspective of the astronauts, Apollo 9 had a lot going for it. And the reason McDivitt preferred the Apollo 9 mission and that his crew said they preferred it is because they felt like it was a more important mission in terms of laying the foundation for, for a moon landing, whereas... Apollo 8 was going to get a lot of public attention, but wasn't testing the incredibly ambitious set of things that they were testing. Um, As Andrew Chaikin described it in his book, A Man on the Moon, it was a test pilot's feast, far more difficult, ambitious, and in some ways more dangerous than Apollo 8. All of this meant that the training for both Apollo 8 and 9 basically overlapped. And while the latter put many hours of work into the LIM simulator, the crews often worked in the CSM simulator basically back-to-back. And as you know, if if you've read any of the stuff or seen any of the movies, these simulators could cause problems pretty often, breaking down, delaying the schedule, causing frustration. Uh, At one point, McDivitt apparently just told his wife that the mission just wasn't ever happening, but thankfully, (laughs) that was just frustration and, and not the truth. Just a low point, a low point in that. So um, by making these changes and by saying, as I said earlier, um, by saying, okay, you guys are going to go on eight 
and then McDivitt's crew, you guys are going to go on nine. What that meant was that they changed the backup crews and they put them in a different sequence than originally when it would have been McDivitt's crew on eight and the other crew on nine. And that meant the backup crews changed, which meant the crews of Apollo 11 and 12 changed. And this is what I meant by sort of the machine ending up making it all work because the decision for McDivitt to go in Apollo 9 meant that Pete Conrad would go in Apollo 12 and it meant that Neil Armstrong's crew would go in Apollo 11. And that is probably the clearest answer for why was it Neil Armstrong is just sort of worked out that way when they made the change to Apollo 8 and flipped the crews of 8 and 9. In a way, Apollo 9 sort of reminds me of a Gemini mission. I think it's based on what you said earlier. Like the, From the perspective of a test pilot, this is an incredible mission. You get to be the first crew to fly a new spacecraft. And, and Gemini was about that, right? Each Gemini mission had some new ground to break with either new hardware or new processes or flying higher than it's ever been before, basically building the stepping stones to future missions. You know, NASA was never going to land on the moon without flying the limb first. So someone's got to do it. Yeah, McDevitt definitely uh, said at several points during this process, like, we're not going to we're not going to get through all the mission goals, but we're going to try to get as many of them as as we can. And mm-hmm. I, I just a spoiler, they got through all the mission goals. So they did. <laughs> they really kind of nailed it among the goals. So they were going to put the LEM through a full range of operations that would be necessary to land on the moon and return safely to the command module waiting in lunar orbit. So as you said, Stephen, you've got to get to orbit and you've got to pull the LEM out attached to the CSM. And then you have to be able to separate them and fly them around and then bring them back. You have two different sets of engines on the lunar module that you have to fire. Um, Apollo 10 was going to take the LEM within 15.6 kilometers of the lunar surface, but Apollo 9 was the one who had to run through every single task that the LEM was going to perform. Exactly, That's exactly right. They were going to basically do all the steps needed to make sure the lunar module could do what it needed to do when it was at the moon. Uh, so this this gets started on the third day of the mission. Uh, Scott stayed in the command module while his true crewmates traveled uh, through the tunnel to the limb. Once there and the hatches were closed, the two spacecraft separated, and the limb's descent thrusters were used to separate the limb from the CSM. They flew separately for some nine hours before being rejoined. Now, on day four, they took it another level. Uh, There's supposed to be a two-hour spacewalk in EVA by Rusty Schweikert. But he got motion sick, space sick, which, again, as we said on, a, I think, our previous Apollo episode, they didn't understand, because there weren't enough data points, that a certain percentage of people just get motion sick in space. And that's just how it is. Um, but so Schweiker got space sick a little bit. And the feeling was, you know, if he's in that environmental suit and he throws up, bad. then it could be fatal. Yeah, it's extremely bad. So uh, they put it off, and it looked like they might need to even cancel portions of the mission, which would have been bad. Um, the spacewalk that they that they put off would have tested uh, going from the lunar module back to the command module. The idea there was that if they couldn't dock uh, at, for some reason, you could just transfer people from one to the other on the outside. Um so that would be a way to get, what if we land on the moon and come back and then we, for whatever reason, can't get the docking to work. You get in your spacesuits and you float over to the other spacecraft. But um, they weren't able to test that. Uh, instead, he suited up with NASA's, again, this new life support backpack and opened the hatch on the limb and floated 
outside, while Scott used an older suit standing up with his upper body out of the CSM. So we saw this in Gemini 2, where it's like sort of yeah. an upper torso EVA. Um, <laughs> it's, I say it still counts. The hatch is open. You're in the suit. But <laughs> uh, during this, uh, Scott was supposed to document uh, the event uh, with video again. First time we've had two crew outside. But the camera he was using failed, uh, and McDivitt basically gave his crew members five minutes to see if they could get it working again. Right, so Scott is fiddling with the camera, and Schweikert is floating in space with nothing to do at all, which is incredibly rare. Uh, and he, he talked about it afterward. Here's a little clip of an interview he gave later. Uh, I only got a few, uh, a few feet up the handrail when... Uh, the movie camera that Dave Scott was using to film that um, jammed. And so uh, he said, hey, wait a minute, uh, the camera just jammed. And Jim McDivitt over here said, uh, okay, Dave, I'm going to give you five minutes to try and fix the camera, and Rusty, stay right where you are. And so Dave took five minutes, and I, I took five minutes time out, you know. And I just, uh, I just took the opportunity to say, okay, great, I'm up here in space, this is my five minutes to really let this experience come in as a human being, not as an astronaut, not thinking about what came next, but just to say, I'm a human being up here in space, what is this all about? And all of these really important questions kind of came flooding in, unexpected, I mean like, how did I get here? Not via Saturn V, but, you know, the evolution of humanity and the invention of the machines that we've invested in. And that combination of human beings and the machines have enabled us to begin moving out from the planet. And this is obviously just the beginning of that evolution of life out of planet Earth into space. And all of that kind of came flooding in, you know, uh, given that five minutes with nothing to do. So being unemployed in that kind of an environment is incredible. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by ExpressVPN. We can probably all just say to ourselves, hold our hands up and say, you know, cybercrime is something that we think happens to other people. It's not going to happen to me. Who would want my data? Well, the bad news is stealing data from people like me and you using public Wi-Fi is pretty simple. It's the simplest way for hackers to to make money, which is uh, leaves us in a in a state we should take care of. So, if you leave your internet connection unencrypted, your passwords, credit card numbers, other stuff, it's all vulnerable. But there's something you can do to protect yourself from these cyber criminals. You can start using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing. It encrypts your data and hides your public IP address with easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly on the background of your device. You can turn on ExpressVPN protection with just a click. Then you're free to safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having your personal data stolen. ExpressVPN is rated the top VPN service by TechRadar and even comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. I've been using ExpressVPN uh, a good bit, and I've got 
a lot of travel coming up and I've got it all my laptop ready. So if I'm in an airport or in a hotel, I can know that my all my stuff I'm doing on the internet is safe and sound. And their apps are really good on the Mac. It just sits in your menu bar and you can enable it really quickly with just a click and then you're you're ready to go. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. If you've ever used public Wi-Fi and want to keep the bad guys away from your data, you need ExpressVPN. So go to expressvpn.com slash liftoff to learn more. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash liftoff. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash liftoff for three months free with a one-year package. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of Liftoff and all of Relay FM. So the highlight of Apollo 9 would really come on day five. Once again, Scott is left in gumdrop while his crew members climb over to Spider. They separate again and fly the lander some 113 miles away from the command service module. The crew then turned the craft back around uh, facing Scott's direction. And there's, there's a great interaction between the crew members here that I, I want to share with you. Spider gumdrop. Go ahead, gumdrop. I've got uh, 67 miles and 112 feet per second. Okay, we have uh, 67 miles and 107 feet per second. How about that? Terrific, and you're 5 feet per second off. You're going to have to shape that up. Well, let me take some more marks and I'll get it squared away. All righty. Upside down again. Hey, I'm just thinking one of us isn't right side up. Well, you've got contraptions hanging out all over. Okay, I have us about 370 feet. Okay, looks closer than that. Get done it, though. How does that sports car handle, Jim? Pretty nice. I don't even see you in there, David. Oh, I'm here. The descent stage was jettisoned just as if the crew had landed on the moon. Uh, remember, they leave a little part behind <laughs> when, because they don't need to take it back with them. And that allowed them to test the a- ascent stage motor. So, again, a new engine that had not been fired in space yet. And this is the one that they used to fly back toward Gumdrop, um, leaving the LEM 75 miles behind and 10 miles below the CSM for a rendezvous that would take place a few hours later. After docking, the ascent stage was jettisoned and commanded to fire its engine uh, to deplete all the fuel. It actually marked the first time a crewed test vehicle would be left behind to, to re-enter and burn up on its own. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting, the idea that this is the first time that there's something that people were in that they're like, uh, we don't need that anymore. We've discarded the spacecraft. It can just uh, burn up. Well, the, the limb was not designed for flight in the atmosphere. I mean, it was not going to yeah. re-enter. <laughs> that's, yeah, we'll talk more about the limb later, but that's one of the things that's fascinating about it is it is, it is a spaceship. It is not meant to be used anywhere but in vacuum, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty amazing. Um, there was some drama on the mission. How, how could there not be? <laughs> um, there were some concerns about one of the readings from a helium tank on board the LEM. Um, this is dramatized in the spider episode of From the Earth to the Moon. And the uh, the people at Grumman who built the LEM are like, and ultimately they're confident about it. It's a good ship. It's going to be fine. Uh, it, was pr- it was high pressure, but within the acceptable range. And they said it's going to be fine. And it was fine. Didn't lead to any problems with the LEM's thrusters when they were orbiting. 
Uh, this worked, and this all meant that Apollo 9 had carried out its main objective, proving that the lunar module was a viable spacecraft and ready to go to the moon. We did it. Woo! Woo! It's fine. It is. I mean, the, the huge amount of testing, and they tested it, and it worked. And the other thing is, I mean, keeping in mind, first spacecraft of its kind, first off the line uh, for this thing the, in terms of going into space. I, I think it was I think it was the third one they made, but it was the first one that was going to have people in it that was going to going to work at all. And they they put it through its paces and it all worked. Now, that said, the crew had other stuff to do while they were in orbit. Their, their job is never done. There were two TV broadcasts made to Earth from Apollo 9. The first was on March 5th. It lasted for about seven minutes. There was a second broadcast the next day, about 13 minutes. And that one showed interior views of the lunar module. It seems to me that NASA maybe dialed back after a previous crew had complained of how much time and energy these took. But part of me thinks, too, that after Apollo 8, maybe they were afraid of attention waning a little bit, so they, they shortened it. I'm not really sure what, what went to the decision, but it's pretty different from other missions in this regard. And again, Apollo 8 was a very you know dramatic mission in a way that oh, Apollo yeah. 9 was not. They were just doing test, <laughs> test flights. Reading Genesis 1 on Christmas Eve, coming around the moon is like, what's a high point? And then you're flying around a little spacecraft, and you're like, yeah. Do, do people care as much? Maybe not. Maybe that was a good move. They did test um, something called Crewman Optical Alignment Site, COAS, which is really interesting, um, used to test how far you could see stuff in space. This is interesting because we talked about going out 100 miles and then coming back. It's like, well, 100 miles, that's really far. But with COAS, they tested and they were actually able to spot a Pegasus 2 satellite that was a thousand miles away. So they're learning a little bit about like how far can you spot an object in space as an astronaut looking out the window. And that's what COAS tested. And and the answer was they could see that satellite that was a thousand miles away. After everything was done, the crew splashed down about three miles from their recovery ship on March 13th. Little trivia, this was actually the last Apollo capsule to splash down in the Atlantic Ocean. Gumdrop is now on display at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Yeah, go to Balboa Park and check it out. It's there. Gumdrop, you can see it right there in San Diego. All a the astronauts from this mission, as of our recording in 2019, are still alive. McDivitt became the manager of lunar landing operations and then the manager of the Apollo spacecraft program. He was the program manager for Apollo missions 12 through 16. Wow. Pretty pretty cool. Um, he left NASA in 1972 to enter corporate life and ended up being the senior vice president at Rockwell, a major aerospace company, for 14 years. Dave Scott was the backup commander of Apollo 11, as was his right, and that meant he was the commander of Apollo 15. So check back in July of 2021, and we'll talk more about <laughs> Dave Scott. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. A little, little, uh, just, there, there are more Apollo missions to come. Uh, he ended up as the head of NASA's Dryden Flight Research Center uh, in the mid-70s. Later was the president of his own consulting company. He was an advisor on Apollo 13 and the HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon that I, I mentioned earlier. So uh, in his uh, later years, uh, he became a consultant about the space program, which is uh, pretty cool. And then Rusty Schweikert um, stayed in NASA for a while, worked on the Skylab project project um went to dc and worked at nasa headquarters in 74 and left nasa in 1977 an interesting thing about schweikert he was not particularly comfortable in the nasa culture um he and his wife were both politically liberal and active in the civil rights movement among others and nasa especially in the 60s and 70s was a very conservative culture 
And so he was uh, referred to as, I think, the freak astronaut at Mm. one point, which I think meant that they thought he was kind of a hippie. Only in terms of astronauts would Rusty Schweikert, I think, be considered (laughs) a hippie. Yeah. (laughs) But like, oh, his flat top is slightly longer than the others. But anyway, it's interesting that he he and his wife were not as comfortable comfortable in the NASA culture. He ended up working for uh, Jerry Brown in the California government in the 70s for seven years and then later went on and worked in the telecommunications industry. So uh, we, we've mentioned this, but in Apollo 9, it, it seems like it's overlooked. It seems like it's forgotten when thinking about the journey to the moon. It lives in the shadow of Apollo 8, perhaps. And I can understand that. But after prepping for this and reading a lot about it and watching a bunch of interviews and documentaries, like this was a hugely important deal. It's true that uh, this was not as much of a crowd pleaser like Apollo 8, but it was, you know, as we said earlier on, more professionally fulfilling. Maybe it's a mission that only astronauts could truly appreciate, but they really did kill it. They nailed all of their mission requirements. They cleared up all doubt about whether the LEM was going to be a suitable spacecraft, which I think all the astronauts who saw it were very skeptical of this weird thing that looked nothing like anything that they'd seen in the space program up to this point. You could make an argument that up to this point, this is the most successful Apollo mission and maybe the most successful space mission that NASA had done to this point. They got everything right. They cleared off up every question about the limb. And the sense I get from reading reports about this era is that when Apollo 9 came back, Everybody knew that the moon landing was going to happen with 11. Everybody knew. They had to do one more test with 10. In fact, I read through this, and we'll talk about this with Apollo 10. I I read through this and thought, I'm a little surprised that NASA didn't just say, let's just land on Apollo 10. Let's just do it. Why are we even... Why, why, why even wait a mission? Because after Apollo 9, I think everybody knew it was going to happen because they had all the pieces now. I think you're totally right. It's It deserves all, all the praise we can give it, especially like if you, when you factor in, they were worried about space sickness and they overcame that and still did the EVA, even though it was modified, like they got everything done under some, you know, some pretty rough circumstances health-wise and just a lot of stuff. I mean, this was a chock full mission and uh, they, they checked every box and it's, it's really cool. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you in part by Squarespace. Makes Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for whatever your next idea is. You can get a unique domain. You can use their award-winning templates. So much more. So whether you want to create an online store and sell stuff on the internet, you can create a portfolio, you can set up a blog. Blogging is fun. I do that. You do that, Stephen. We, you know, blogging. You can do that with Squarespace. It's an all-in-one platform. No matter what you want to do, you can do it with Squarespace. And best of all, there's nothing to install. No software patches, no security updates, anything like that. They take care of all of that. All you do is use Squarespace to make your site. Squarespace does all of the technical bits behind the scenes. They've also got great award-winning 24-7 customer support. If you need any help, they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed so you can show off 
your great ideas. Plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. What better sponsor could Liftoff have than Squarespace? When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff. You'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you to Squarespace for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move. Make your next website. Okay, Apollo 9 was where the lunar module got tested. But the fact is, every Apollo mission from here on out has a lunar module, and we haven't really talked about the lunar module itself. So uh, maybe we should talk about that. Sounds good to me. It's a, a vital piece to all of this. Yeah, you, you need one. You need one. So a lot, <laughs> you do. I mean, you can't like again Apollo eight. Otherwise, you call it a day, right? Like, hey, we went to the moon. Wave, hello, moon, and then you come home. Uh, the real question here is, how do you land on the moon? That like the big philosophical question: How do you land on the moon with people, and then how do you get them back off and back to Earth? And early on in the planning stages of Apollo, many people within NASA, most prominently Werner von Braun, the rocket scientist from Germany who had come to America uh, after World War II. And when he was working in Germany, he was already pumping up the idea of taking, sending people to the moon and to Mars and all of that. And he was a rocket guy. And he was like, big rocket, shoot it to the moon. That's what we do. Um, however, there were some other people who swam against the tide a little bit. And most notably, an engineer named John Hubbelt, who became a strong believer in a concept called lunar orbit rendezvous. Um, which means you take two spacecraft to the moon, one orbits, the other one goes down to the surface and then lifts back off and uh, reattaches to the other spacecraft. Um, and that was, uh, it was a, a radical idea. Yeah. Who's the hippie now? No, I'm just ah. kidding. Um, Hubble. I mean, clearly risky. Two spacecraft, you have to rendezvous yeah do all these things and at this point remember that hadn't been done yeah yeah uh, mercury was the mercury program was barely up and running at this point right gemini was still a ways off but he was insistent about the idea so much so that he wrote a letter to nasa brass like skipping over several managers you know several layers of bureaucracy um but it worked he landed a meeting and in that meeting he convinced them that it was it was decided that this lunar orbit rendezvous idea was the right way to go yeah my impression is that he planted a seed and everybody's like okay dude whatever and then like as time went on it just that idea never went away and once it was in the marketplace of ideas it won Mm -hmm. like that the whole challenge was just breaking people out of the idea of direct lunar insertion or um Earth orbit rendezvous, where you shoot a, a multiple spacecraft up uh, in Earth orbit and attach them and then fly to the moon, which were both under discussion. Once uh, LOR came into the picture and they started thinking about it, they realized the costs of building a little spacecraft that only needed to land on the moon were, um, it was so much better in so many different ways. And so there we go in the fall of 1962. They, uh, NASA took bids for the Lunar Excursion Module, which is what it was called at the time. Uh, later, they dropped the Excursion because 
I think they felt like that would be like taking a Sunday drive, <laughs> just a little excursion to the moon. Yeah. We'd bring a picnic lunch to the moon. <laughs> uh, but it was learn an excursion module. L E M was very obviously called the Lem, and that's why even though it's the L M, everybody pronounced it Lem, not Lum or Lim or whatever. It was always the Lem, and it was uh, the winner was uh, Grumman. Uh, company on long island um they had been studying the whole thing uh already and working on lunar orbit rendezvous concepts and they won the contract in november of 62 they had a very detailed design already with an ascent and descent stage present in those early designs they were really on top of it they had an idea of how you make a lunar lander and then they spent the next five years building uh, lunar modules basically figuring out how to build them they were all out of custom parts and and they built them Mm -hmm. Uh, of course that initial design would change over time and again from the earth to the moon shows a lot of this there's a little like time lapse as they as they uh move move things on and off of a little model because they're like how about this nope that's not gonna work how about this (laughs) yeah it's great it's a great scene weight was a, a huge concern here so that led to things like smaller windows uh the limb doesn't have any seats in it as a you don't need a seat there was even a version without a ladder uh, turns out you need a ladder to get in and out easily, so they they ditched this rope and pulley idea. Went back to the ladder, but even basic things like the shape of the hatch had to be reworked. Remember, they're building this as the program is evolving in parallel across different space centers, across different sub programs, and it's like the first half of the 1960s is just lots and lots of design and then redesign work over and over. Right. They they changed the backpack. We mentioned the suit that the the astronauts had to test uh, that was going to go the untethered self-contained suit so you could do a moonwalk. And it ended up with a square backpack. And at one point in the process, Grumman had to change their round hatches into square hatches so that you could get out with the backpack. And that was just a thing that they they had to do. There's so many little things. The The standing is amazing. I hadn't really thought about it, but like one of the reasons that um, that they stand is not just to save money on chairs, but and you're in light gravity, you can just float and stuff, but it's also to save money on windows because and weight on windows because if you're standing, you um, you can build a window in the little area where they can see out and then that's it and then you don't have to have a huge window right uh, with a kind of a a moonscape around you and so it's you know not as pretty looking a spacecraft but uh, much more functional and able to be built within the budget um insulation was a big problem too grumman had to protect the craft from these extreme temperature swings in space um and they use layers of mylar a new material which is if you think about it that's mylar is like what you get in a like a helium balloon for up like a birthday party mm-hmm. super thin balloon material and they coated uh almost every surface with mylar and layers of mylar depending on on where it was and how much insulation it needed they had many layers of mylar but it made it look that's the tin foil look the gold foil look you get is if you think about the thin mylar surface of a like a, a balloon they would just there were layers of that, which meant that the limb was very light, and uh, and which was fine because it was actually in, uh, you know, almost very light, no to light gravity, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we get to spring of 1965, and NASA freezes the design. We have this, like I said, unusual looking spacecraft, but it's <laughs> it's spider. It's perfectly designed <laughs> to land on the moon. Aerodynamics are not a concern. Heat, heavy yeah. heat shields. Not a concern. You you have what you need and really nothing else. Yeah, it's never uh, going to see atmosphere. That's not what it's for. So 
Uh, yeah, the um, top half of the limb is called the ascent stage. It contains the crew cabin, the flight controls, an EVA hatch on the side with a hatch at the top to be used when connected to the command module. So you can go back and forth between the two modules. The ascent stage was responsible for getting the crew from the surface back to lunar orbit. So it's the part that would blast off from the lunar surface and go back up and rendezvous with the uh, CSM. Yep. Like we said, weight, weight is the concern here. So they've, they've stripped things out they don't need. And, uh, you know, so you, you think, well, there are no seats. Well, like, where did they sleep? You know, some of these later Apollo missions were on the moon f- for long enough where they had rest periods. And, and you may think, well, did they have like a, a bed in the wall? No, no, no. They have a set of hammocks that they hung across the tiny cabin. And like, when I say tiny, I mean it. The crew cabin, 2.3 meters tall and about a, a meter across. It is a very cramped space. Yeah incredibly incredibly small now the descent stage is perhaps more recognizable it's got the landing legs wrapped in mylar again three of the four foot pads come with a 170 centimeter contact sensor probe you can see this in some of the pictures from apollo 9 like it's not just like the pads at the end of the feet then there are these like things that stick out and the idea there is that when you're getting close to the surface they're going to hit first and make contact and there's a contact light that the pilot sees and they know at that point that they can cut the thrusters and drop to the lunar surface so that's why they have those things there Um, there were storage cubbies in the descent stage for equipment like cameras geological tools and later that's where they tucked the lunar rover as well was down in the descent stage i can't wait to talk about the rover it may be my favorite apollo hardware (laughs) yeah i was looking up uh uh, the space stuff, as you do, you know, for sure. the Liftoff podcast. And I found the, we won't spoil it, but I found the person who holds the record for longest um, longest distance driven in space. It's a good record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, check back in sometime in the future. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the lunar rover eventually. So uh, you go to the moon, you disconnect from the CSM, you go down, you make contact, you land the limb on the surface of the moon. You get out, you get some rocks, you power slide in the lunar rover for a while. But when it's time to go, then um, you go back in the limb. And this is where the descent stage and ascent stage, where that difference lies. So the descent stage, again, with its four legs, uh, serves as the launch pad for the ascent stage. So um, that means that there are actually six descent stages still on the surface of the moon. You know, That's they right. landed and they they don't go anywhere. They're they are still there. Many ascent stages re-entered uh, Earth's atmosphere or were crashed into the moon after lunar orbit rendezvous to ensure they'd be out of the way for future missions. So this is a this is a disposable spacecraft, if you will. Mm-hmm. Only the Apollo 10 lunar module, uh, the ascent module, is still in space. It's in a heliocentric orbit. All in all, Grumman built 22 or so lunar modules. The exact number is a little fuzzy. I read a couple of conflicting things, but about 22. Uh, those that weren't flown are on display in museums around the world. I've seen a couple of them, and it, it is a sight to behold. So as Grumman was starting building and testing units, it built a motor testing facility in White Sands, New Mexico. And the, this program had several firsts of its own. The descent engine took the lunar module from the command and service module in lunar orbit down to the surface. It was the first rocket built with a throttle. And the uh, so that's what, you know, 
Neil Armstrong in First Man, let's say, right? There, he's he's got throttle control over the rocket as he's uh, coming down. The ascent engine took the upper half of the LEM from the surface all the way back up to lunar orbit. There was no failsafe on this motor. If it failed, the astronauts would be stuck on the moon. Not good. It used hypergolic propellant whose components lit on contact with each other. No pumps or igniter. You basically open the hatches. The fuel in the oxidizer uh, will connect and ignite. Uh, They were extremely toxic and corrosive. So the flight motors could never be test fired (laughs) because that would be the end of that engine. It was a single use. Talk about your disposable spacecraft. It was really a a single use kind of thing. So to train for this, astronauts used this insane rig and there there's you could see this it's like really unstable neil armstrong almost died flying it and uh and mm-hmm. then they moved to uh training in like a, an indoor simulator uh with and i love this lunar uh movies of the lunar surface playing out the window so you can get a yeah. feel for what you're doing little, little vibe yeah. yeah isn't that nice yeah uh, now initially the limb was going to be part of an uncrewed test on apollo 4 that was one of those early limbs Um, But NASA's testing showed huge issues with the vehicle, fuel leaks, wiring problems. And so Apollo 4 left Earth without any LEM on board. Uh, There was more testing. They blew a window out when the LEM was pressurized at one point. It's not good. You know, the early days, (laughs) uh, it was stressful of them building this. NASA gave Grumman strict instructions about debris in the spacecraft to avoid such incidents, even though a definitive cause was never found. Uh, Apollo 5, which we've spoken about, did take an uncrewed kind of unfinished limb to space. Uh, but Apollo 9 is, again, where this vehicle, where it got tested. And mm-hmm. later in 1969, the first one touched down on the moon as part of Apollo 11 and then made history. We're going to talk about that particular spacecraft soon. And of course, uh, not to be forgotten, the lunar module that saved the lives of the Apollo 13 crew on the 50th anniversary of that mission. Right. And in May, we will talk about a particular group of Apollo astronauts in our next special Apollo episode who took the lunar module out for a spin and were sorely tempted to land on the moon, but were not supposed to do that, so they didn't. Not supposed to do it. Yes, yeah, so we will get to that soon. In the meantime, if you want to learn more, read more, watch more about Apollo 9, we've collected some resources in the show notes. You can find those at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 92. While you're there, you can drop us an email. Uh, in between our episodes, we uh, link stories and things on our Tumblr. Uh, there's a link uh, to that on the sidebar as well. Or you can find us and follow us on Twitter. Uh, Jason is there as J Snell, and you can find me there as ISMH. Until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.